The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of 1 Peter, and today the next passage we come to is 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. And the scripture says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Joe. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to open and to study your word, and uh, we understand that these words come from your very mouth. Uh, they are, as scripture says in Second Timothy chapter 3, they are God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So we pray, help us by your Holy Spirit to be thoroughly equipped for each of those things, and ultimately to come to a deeper knowledge, a deeper love, and a deeper relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When Jesus saves someone, he not only forgives them of their sins, but also changes them into a new person. The Bible describes it as a heart of stone being replaced with a heart of flesh. The individual is now a new person with new uh, desires, new priorities, a new nature, a totally new outlook and perspective on life. I once heard a preacher uh, describe it in this way. Imagine that we brought a pig in here. And uh, we led him right down here to the foot of these steps. And then imagine we also brought in a nice big pile of slop and set it down in front of that pig. Now, I'm sure that the pig would love that slop, right? He would feast on it and roll in it and think it was the best thing ever. Why would he think that? Well, because he's a pig. And by nature, pigs like slop, right? It's in their nature to like slop. But imagine that we had the ability to instantly turn that pig into a man. What would happen when we did that? How would that man respond to having a mouthful of slop? And having all that slop smeared all over his body. Well, he'd be absolutely disgusted 
by, of course, and he would immediately spit every bit of that slop out of his mouth, try his best to clean himself up, and be mortified that we had all seen him in such a condition. That would be his natural response as a man. So by nature, humans find slop disgusting. And that's the way a true Christian feels about sin. God has changed their heart, their very nature, in a fundamental way so that they're now disgusted by the sin they once loved. They find it repulsive. Another way to say this is that a true Christian desires holiness. They have a built-in desire to live a life that brings glory to God and that reflects God's own character. The God of the Bible is a holy God. And so Christians have a desire to be holy as well. Do I need to use another mic? I'll use the mission moment mic. Can I have that? However, even though we have a desire to be holy, there are challenges that we face. So first of all, the world in which we live is obviously not one that's very concerned at all about holiness. In fact, it often actively opposes holiness. You know, in our society especially, anyone who's passionately committed to living a holy life is seen as, well, a number of things, but one of them as some sort of relic from the past, right? From previous generations when people were more concerned about what we might call traditional moral values. And so to be a Christian in our society is very much to be swimming against the current, right? It's to be headed in this direction while everyone else is headed in that direction. Even though Jesus has changed our hearts also and put to death that old sinful nature, we also have another challenge. And that in addition to the challenge of the world around us, and that is the challenge of our the, the own desires that we have sometimes. Uh, Jesus, as we said, has put to death that old person, but it's like the ghost of the old person still lingers and still can pull us into sin. And then on top of both of those things, the Bible teaches us that Satan is a very real and active force in this world and is doing everything he can to pull us away from God and to pull us into sin. And so even though those of us who are Christians are new people with a new nature, we still need encouragement to live a life that reflects God's character, a life of holiness. And that's exactly what our main passage of scripture today, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16, encourages us to do. The passage begins in verse 13 with the word, therefore. And as one of my seminary professors like to say, whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, some of you know this, you always have to ask what it's there for. That's right. So what's the context? Because the word therefore points back to what's just been said and either draws a conclusion about it or presents an application. 
So if you look at the previous verses, you see that Peter's just written at length about the living hope that we have as Christians of an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. He's then talked about the joy his readers have as they eagerly anticipate receiving that inheritance when Jesus returns. We then read in verse 13, our main passage, Therefore, right, because of everything that's just been written, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the main application Peter gives us here is to set our hope fully on this grace that will be brought to us when Jesus returns. However, before we get to that, let's not skip over what Peter says about preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded. In the original Greek language, the phrase prepare your minds literally means Gird up the loins of your mind. You know, back in ancient times, people would wear robes that, uh, we'll just say, weren't very conducive to strenuous physical activity. And so if they wanted to do something like run or fight in a battle, they would have to tie up. They, well, first of all, gather up the, the loose ends of their robe and then tie them up tightly around their bodies so that they would be able to move around freely and easily and be ready for action. So that's what it literally meant to gird up your loins. And in this verse, Peter's telling us to do that very same thing with our minds. He says to, to gird up the loins and the loose ends of your mind. Rein in those, those wandering thoughts and conform our thoughts to the truths revealed in the Bible. The implicit principle we find here is that right thinking is prerequisite for right living. Right? right thinking is prerequisite for right living. If you want to get your life in order, you've got to begin by getting your mind in order. So you might want to ask yourself this morning, what beliefs are you operating on in the course of your day-to-day -day life? Are you really living in light of the truths revealed in the Bible? And also, what fills your mind throughout the day? You know, 10 minutes reading the Bible in the morning, followed by an hour two hours, three hours, looking at other media, Fox News or whatever other similar media, that, that's not going to shape you into a godly person. What are you filling your mind with? Gird up the loins of your mind, Peter says. He then says to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, set your hope fully on the time when you'll experience God's grace in a climactic way at the return of Jesus. And think about that word, fully. That means we're not hedging our bets here. We're not living with a divided heart or 
divided loyalties. Diversification might be a wonderful approach in the world of financial investing, but it's not at all an acceptable option when it comes to spiritual things. God expects us to be all in, right? He calls us to set our hope fully on what he's promised for our future and not live with divided hearts or divided loyalties. And so what then does that involve? What does setting our hope fully on what God's promised for our future look like in our lives presently? Well, Peter answers that question in the subsequent verses, verses 14 through 16. He writes, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And that brings us to the main idea of this passage, which is that hope for the future inspires holiness in the present. Hope for the future inspires holiness in the present. To put it another way, the confident expectation we have of our heavenly inheritance in the future should lead us to live heavenly lives in the here and now. And looking at the beginning of verse 14, we see that we should do this as obedient children. Our mentality in pursuing holiness should be one of assurance that we're already one of God's children. We're not pursuing holiness in an effort to become God's children, but rather because we've already been adopted as his children through Jesus. Like even though our sins once alienated us from God and made us deserving of God's eternal judgment, Jesus came to our rescue. Right? He came to this earth as a, a real human being, lived a perfectly sinless life, and then died on the cross to make atonement for our sins. Right? That, that means Jesus endured the penalty that our sins deserved so that we wouldn't have to. Then three days later, Jesus resurrected from the dead so that those who put their trust in him are, among other things, adopted into God's family as his own children, dearly loved and fully accepted by virtue of what Jesus has accomplished. And so as we seek to live holy lives, we're not doing this to earn God's love or acceptance or, or to obtain a place in his family. You know, we're doing it with the understanding that we're already dearly loved children of God. And that makes us genuinely desire to please our Heavenly Father and live lives that bring him glory. Peter then says that as obedient children, we need to avoid being what he calls conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. In other words, don't let the sinful desires that still exist within your heart and that belong to your former mentality as a non-Christian pull you away from Jesus. Like, don't let the ghost of your old self and your old nature have any influence in your life. 
Don't let yourself be conformed to it, as Peter says, or be pressed into its mold. Instead, Peter tells us in verses 15 and 16, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So we pursue holiness because we understand that we serve a holy God. Now, to say that God is holy can mean a couple of things. In one sense, God's holiness means that he's utterly unique. There's no one like him in the entire universe. He alone is the creator, while everything else is the created. God alone also rules the world and sustains the world and causes everything in the world to work together to accomplish his own perfect purposes. He's the only one who does that. In addition, it's also true, God's nature is qualitatively different than our nature. He's not just quantitatively different than us, as in fundamentally like us, but just bigger and greater. No, God's qualitatively different. Like, he's not like us at all in his essence. The essence of who he is is fundamentally different than the essence of who we are. So that's one sense in which God is holy. He's holy in that he's utterly unique. And yet there's also another sense, perhaps we might say a derivative sense, in which the Bible speaks of God's holiness as well. And that is as a reference to his moral purity. God is holy in the sense that he's utterly unstained and untainted to even the slightest degree by sin. Like he, he has no sinful inclinations. He has no history of sin. He makes no compromises with sin whatsoever. And it's holiness in this second sense of moral purity that we're called to imitate. As Peter says in verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That means God's holiness is the pattern for our holiness. In our pursuit of holiness, we're called to compare ourselves not with one another and certainly not with a godless culture all around us, but rather with God. Right? We're to be holy as he is holy. You know, if we just compared ourselves with one another, we might very well conclude that we're pretty holy when in fact we might actually be quite far from the standard of holiness to which God calls us. It would be kind of like thinking that something's the color white when in fact it's actually an off-white color. Uh, for example, your teeth <laughs> might initially appear to be white right, if you're just comparing them to other teeth, but if you found something that's truly white, uh, like maybe the, you know, the pure white paint sample card from Home Depot or something, you put that up next to your teeth, well, all of a sudden, you're not looking so good, are you? Uh, your teeth are actually not white, I can guarantee it. They are an off-white, perhaps even a yellowish white. And so in our pursuit of holiness, we want to make sure that we're comparing ourselves with the proper standard 
of holiness. And that standard, of course, is God himself. Not one another, not our godless society, but God himself. And that's what Peter tells us to do. He says to be holy as he who called you is holy. And then in verse 16, Peter references Leviticus 11.44 and says basically the same thing, except he phrases it a little bit differently here. He writes, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, now back, back in verse 15 that we just read, uh, Peter, Peter said to be holy as God is holy. Yet here, we're told to be holy for or because of the fact that God is holy. In other words, God's holiness is not only the pattern of our holiness, it's also the reason and the motivation for our holiness as well. You see, if we want to be close to this holy God, we have to be holy ourselves. And of course, that begins with a positional holiness in which we have a holy status, we might say, instantaneously imparted to us at our conversion by virtue of Jesus. But that's not the end of it. If we want to experience closeness with God and have a sense of his presence in our daily lives, then we have to actually walk in holiness. Like our positional holiness needs to be lived out and manifested in the form of practical holiness. We find this taught in numerous places throughout the Bible, such as Psalm 24, 3 and 4, where David writes, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. If we want to experience closeness to God and joy in his presence, then we actually have to be living a holy life. And that, I believe, is Peter's point back in verse 16. We're called to be holy for or because of the fact that God is holy. God's holiness and our desire to have a close relationship with this holy God is one of the key things that should motivate us to pursue holiness in our lives. Yet at the same time, it's by no means the only thing that motivates us. Um, there are actually several motivations that the Bible gives for pursuing holiness that I'd like to share with you today. Uh, just like Peter's original readers needed encouragement and motivation to live holy lives, we do as well. And so what motivates us to pursue holiness? Four things. The first and most foundational is a desire to glorify God. And the reason we desire to glorify God isn't because we're trying to earn anything, but simply as an expression of love and gratitude for all that God's done in, uh, for us in and through Jesus. When we think about like, God saving us from our sins and showing us such marvelous mercy, we just naturally desire as Christians to live lives that bring him glory. Uh, bringing God glory becomes the grand ambition of our lives. Then the second motivation to pursue holiness is what we've already discussed, a desire to be close to God. 
For the true Christian, there's simply no greater joy in life than the joy found in God. As John Piper writes, in the end, the heart longs not for any of God's good gifts, but for God himself. To see him and know him and be in his presence is the soul's final feast. Beyond this, there is no quest. For us, God's not merely a means to an end, like some kind of cosmic bending machine, but rather, he's the end itself. Our ultimate joy, our highest goal. I love the way David says it in Psalm 27, 4. He writes, one thing have I asked of the Lord. Right? One thing, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And as we've already said, if we want to experience that, we have to be holy. Moving forward, a third motivation for pursuing holiness is a desire to avoid the destructive effects of sin. Sin is like a cancer that can't be contained or controlled and therefore has to be killed. As John Owen so famously said, be killing sin, or many of you know it, it will be killing you. The Bible also uses the metaphor of slavery to describe the impact sin has on our lives. Jesus states in John 8, 34, that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And of course, when we're saved, Jesus frees us from our sin. But for some reason, in what can only be described as insanity, we sometimes are tempted to try and put the shackles back on, apparently having forgotten just how ruthless and domineering sin is. Because even though we tell ourselves that you know, we can make sin serve us, that's never the way it actually works out. Instead, it always ends up being not sin serving us, but us serving sin. Sin is always the master, and we're always its slave. As the church father Augustine said, he that becomes protector of sin shall surely become its prisoner. And finally, a fourth motivation for pursuing holiness is a desire to be useful for God's kingdom. If you're a Christian, I would hope that you desire to be used by God in a wonderful way. I, I, I would hope that you want to make an impact on the world around you with the gospel message of Jesus. Assuming that's the case, just understand that the key to us making an impact on the world is us being distinct from the world. If we don't live lives that are consistent with the way Jesus instructs us to live, we probably won't even have most people's respect, much less be able to share the gospel with them in any compelling way. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 5, 16, 
when he says to let your light shine before others so that they may see your perfect doctrinal statement? No, no. That they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so with these things in mind, let me encourage you to take a moment and think about your life and asking, ask yourself, what's standing in the way? What, what obstacles are standing in the way of your holiness that you need to address? Is there any way in which you're deviating from the path God lays out for us in the behaviors you've been tolerating, the habits you've let yourself slip into, the ways you've been interacting with others in conversation, the attitudes you've been embracing, or the thoughts you've been entertaining? Like what sins have you been tolerating that you need to put to death even this very day? And maybe there are indeed some sins that the, the Holy Spirit is bringing to your attention even now and, and that you're a very aware of. They're very apparent to you. Or maybe this would be something good for you to go home and pray about and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal anything in your life that he desires to reveal that you may not be very aware of now. Because the reality for all of us is that we're often much more aware of the sins and shortcomings of people around us than we are about our own sins and shortcomings, aren't we? Um, I know if I, I've noticed that about myself. Um, and then in addition, it's just the fact that we live in a relatively godless society that embraces and even celebrates a wide variety of things that are directly contrary to God's will. And we'd be foolish to think that that godless mindset all around us hasn't affected us in ways that we're not even aware of. Kind of like a fish doesn't know that it's wet because it's swimming in an ocean of water. We, many times, don't recognize many of our sins because we're simply immersed in them. They're all around us. They're pervasive in our society. And so we need the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to expose those sins and to lead us back to God in those areas and empower us to pursue a life of holiness. Also, anytime we talk about pursuing holiness, I think that one issue that comes to uh, people's minds is the danger of legalism. Now, some people who aren't Christians would view virtually any pursuit of holiness as inherently legalistic. I'm not talking about that. I hope it's clear to all of us now that the Bible does indeed call us to pursue holiness. However, there is such a thing as legalism, and it is a very real danger. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time addressing that. In reality, there are actually three different kinds of legalism. Uh, the first is trying to earn your salvation. And this is by far the most serious type of legalism, since those who have this mentality actually aren't Christians. They're, they're under God's condemnation. The Bible is very clear that we are saved by grace alone rather than by any human merit and through faith alone rather than through any human works. 
That's just basic Christian teaching. Romans 3.28 says quite clearly, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So the first kind of legalism is trying to earn your salvation and is directly contrary to the gospel. Then another kind of legalism isn't anywhere near as serious as the first, but it's still significant. It involves creating rules that aren't found in the Bible. Usually, the way this works is that a well-meaning Christian develops convictions about certain behaviors that they believe are best to avoid, and then insists that all other Christians also need to avoid those behaviors as well. The only problem is that the Bible never actually says we need to avoid those behaviors. And so these Christians who do this are essentially elevating their own personal convictions and their own personal applications of Scripture to the status of being universal mandates for everybody. Just to give a few quick examples of this, there are Christians who would say that listening to secular music is always sinful, that alcohol consumption, even in moderation, is inherently sinful, that taking out a loan to purchase a car is sinful, that a mother or wife working outside the home is sinful, that sending your children to public school is sinful, that doing house chores on the Lord's Day is sinful, and on and on we could go. And it's important to note that some of these things may be good ideas and may be very wise things to do. But we have to be clear that these aren't binding rules that every Christian needs to obey. And the reason we know that is because none of these things is actually taught specifically in the Bible. And then a third kind of legalism involves focusing excessively on external obedience. Even if we understand that we're saved by grace alone and through faith alone, it's still possible to focus so much on external behaviors that God calls us to embrace that we forget the spirit in which God calls us to embrace them. For this reason, I've heard this kind of legalism referred to before as having a legalistic spirit rather than actually advocating a legalistic doctrine. I've also heard it described as focusing so much on God's law that we forget about his love and how it's his love that should motivate us to want to keep his law. Someone who embraces this kind of legalism can talk about the Christian life in such a way that every individual sentence they say is technically true, but when you put it all together, it ends up being seriously deficient. This person might emphasize our duties to obey God and to serve God so much that they never get around to worshiping God or delighting in God or communing with God. So they're doing the right things, but they don't have the right heart. Obedience to God has sort of become an end in itself rather than a, an expression or manifestation of their love for God. And so someone who's fallen into this kind of legalism might do a lot of great things, 
I mean, they might be very dutiful about living a morally upright life and reading their Bible every day and serving in the church and giving to the church and all these other commendable things. The problem, though, is that they're doing these things simply out of duty rather than as a true expression of love for God. And friends, that's not what God desires. Instead, you want to know what God desires. He desires your heart. Now, it's true that God expects us to obey his commands. He he gave us commands for a reason. But God desires more than external obedience. He's after your heart. For example, imagine that I bought my wife some flowers for our wedding anniversary. And yet when I gave her those flowers and she told me how beautiful they are and how much she appreciated them, imagine that I said, honey, don't worry about it. You know, in getting you these flowers, I'm really just doing my duty. You know, I heard a husband is supposed to do this, kind of an obligation really, so I'm I'm doing my duty and getting you these flowers. How well do you think that response is going to go over with her? Probably not very well, right? Because she loves getting flowers for her anniversary, but only insofar as those flowers are a genuine expression of my love for her and delight in her. So what about you? Just to get right down to it, are you captivated by God? Like when you think about who God's shown himself to be in the pages of the Bible and the many facets of his character that are just beyond our comprehension, does your heart just about leap out of your chest in joyful adoration of this glorious God? That's what should be driving our pursuit of holiness. We should be pursuing holiness because we love God and we delight in God. And if you notice in our main passage, Peter ties our pursuit of holiness to who God is. So what God has joined together here through Peter, let's make sure that we don't separate. 